um, to 3 verse 4. Um, you've been around village for any length of time. You know that um, we believe the Bible is the very word of God. Um, Second Timothy says that all scripture is God-breathed. So um, it's central to everything we do. Um, so in light of that and our confessional prayer, let's still our hearts to hear from God this morning. So Colossians two sixteen to 3 verse 4. <clears throat> Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished in it together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I'll just pray and then invite Travis up. Um, God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have given us um, the Bible, you've given us scripture so that we can hear from you and yeah, live our lives according to um, your gospel and your um, good truth um, of Jesus. So I just pray now for Travis as he comes and speaks to us, I pray that we would all um, um, have open hearts and minds to hear what you have to say to us through him. Um, and yeah, just um, still our hearts, still Travis's heart um give him um, your words to say and your wisdom. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, thanks, Lauren. Um, good morning, everyone. Thank you, left side of the room. Um, yeah, I don't know, how's everyone's morning been? I mean, I don't really expect you to respond, but I've just had like, I feel like it's been like a kind of chaotic morning a little bit, at least in my household, which is weird given that we had an extra hour to get things done. Um, you'd think it wouldn't be that way, but such is life. Um, anyway, so yeah, I don't know how you guys are coming in uh, to church this morning, but I'm glad that you're here. Um, I, I think we, I mean, I don't know about you, I can tend to undervalue the time that we spend together. Um, among one another as people that collectively believe in Jesus um, and recognize that, you know, we need him. I think it's, it's an encouragement for me every week because I need to be reminded of that sometimes. Um, but yeah, if you're new here, we're really glad you're here. Um, or if this is like maybe your first or second time, um, yeah, we're especially grateful that, that you've joined us this morning. Uh, we, if you haven't been tracking with us, have been going through the book of Colossians, which is in the New Testament, um, and looking at what Paul says to the church there. Um, I've been enjoying this series personally. It's been really good. Um, one of the things I've really loved about it is the Colossian church is about five to ten years old, just about where our church is. I think I actually mentioned this last time I preached, I think in chapter one a few weeks ago, 
Um, and I just love the fact that they kind of mirror where we as a church are at in terms of like age. And so there's a lot of things I think that we can kind of take from that and think like, oh, they're just kind of like us, except 2,000 years ago. Um, and we can kind of like pick lessons out from that, um, which has been really good. Um, I'm also speaking this morning because Elder, you probably noticed, isn't away, or Andrew Elder is away. Um, he's on a pastor's retreat right now. I don't know if Lauren mentioned that. Um, so he's with some other church planning pastors um, that he's kind of got like good fr- friendship with. And so they're kind of encouraging one another, you know, speaking the Lord together, um, getting some time away from the hard work of church planting and pastoring a church to be an encouragement to one another in that. Um, he does it once a year. I think it's really good for him. And it's really actually a blessing to us as a church that he gets that time away to do that. So, um, so yeah, I hope, I, I hope our church is blessed through his time away. I hope, hopefully, you're blessed through me substituting in for him. Um, but yeah, so we're going to get going in uh, Colossians with the passage that Lauren Graham read. Um, one of the things you probably noticed from my accent, um, I'm from America, and I've been here eight years now, but I continue to love to discover new things about being in Northern Ireland or in the UK or whatever. Um, some of the things I really enjoy are just the things I discover on television, like the programs that I just missed because they never made it to America. And one of those programs is Taskmaster, which I have come to appreciate as like the height of comedy. Um, maybe not, maybe you disagree, but I just, I'm laughing out loud every single time I'm watching an episode. And we were watching an episode this week, and it actually reminded me a lot of what we're going to be looking at in this passage. Um, we're in season five, if you care about the seasons and the cast for each season. And uh, Mark Watson, I had to write his name down because I knew I was going to forget, was doing a task. And the task they had to do was they had to open a briefcase, and there was a coconut and the task was to make the coconut look like a businessman. And so everyone goes in, they sit down at the table, they crack open the briefcase, they read the thing, they take the coconut, and they do whatever they did to accomplish the task. Mark spent almost 12 minutes trying to figure out how to open the briefcase. And he's sitting there, he's like working it, he's like trying to play with the locks. And I, I can't, he made some kind of comment about like, is this the task, like just getting this thing open? And it was unlocked. He just was overcomplicating it and overthinking it. And like, just, he just needed to flip the thing and open it. And eventually, um, little Alex Horn had to come in and like help him, right? Like, just, you know, get the thing open. And so it was funny. Um, he actually placed second in that task, by the way, because he opened a business in the coconut's name, like, like an actual business. And so they're like, well, you actually made it a real businessman. So he did very well, actually, in that task once he got the briefcase open. But it was funny to me because we can complicate simple things, especially when it comes to following Jesus. And that's what Paul talks about with the Colossian church here. He has just reminded them, and I'm actually going to reread what we read last week, of the gospel and about the idea that Jesus is all we need for faith and life and salvation. And then he goes on to address the ways that the church is taking that simple idea and making it complicated and therefore making walking with God and following Jesus and living a life of faith more difficult on themselves. And so we're going to look at that. We're going to look at how that applies to us. Um, and hopefully, hopefully it's an encouragement to all of us this morning that it really is a simple thing to follow Jesus and to put our faith and trust in him. I'm going to pray for us one more time. Lauren, thank you for praying, but I'm going to do it again because I can't get enough on a Sunday morning, um, especially when you're preaching, and then we'll get on with it. Uh, Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for our time together, and thank you for your word um, that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. God, that we can look at your word, we can trust it, and we can apply it to our lives. Um, 
Thank you that your word reminds us of who we are and constantly calls us back to you to show us your love for us and your faith, uh, faithfulness to us, your trustworthiness. So God, as we look at this passage, I pray, God, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that would respond to where we might be missing the mark this morning um, and that we might return um, either through confession or repentance that's necessary or even just by being encouraged to what it means to follow you, um, that we might find, as we always do, forgiveness and grace where we're missing the mark. Um, and We might once again sort of be restored in you and find um, the hope and the peace that comes from being in you. So, God, I pray this morning that you would help me um, to communicate your word faithfully. Um, God, anything I say that's just not true, well, I pray I wouldn't say anything that's not true um, this morning, and that um, God, we might all be encouraged reading your word together and learning from it. And it's your name we pray. Amen. Um, so, by way of reminder, we're, the passage we're looking at starts with the word therefore, and I, I just feel like it's necessary for us to remind ourselves what Paul's building on. Because oftentimes we read these letters, and it's good, I think it's really good that we do it how we do it, where we take piece by piece and really kind of plumb the depths of kind of what is going on in there. But at the same time, it is a letter. Like Paul wrote this to the Corinthian, uh, Colossian church for them to read it kind of like front to back. Um, you wouldn't get like a Christmas card and read like two sentences, and set it down, and then come back to it a week later and to read the next two sentences, right? Like, there's a flow. There's like, a, like a, a way, like Paul's thinking builds on itself. He's trying to communicate the gospel. And so the things that we have when we go deep in the word build on the things that we've heard before when it comes to these epistles. And so when he says, therefore, he's referring back to what he's just said. So unless your memory is really, really sharp, and you like got it cold, like you like listened to last week's podcast, which couldn't happen. I don't think I've recorded anyway. So you, sorry. Unless your uh, memory's really good from last week, you probably kind of forgot what we talked about, and that's okay. So we're going to reread it real quick and then kind of see how Paul builds on it. So starting in verse 11, Paul tells the Colossian church this, In him, Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been built, uh, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who are dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What Paul's saying is he's reminding the Colossian church of the gospel. He's saying that you have been made a people, the whole circumcision talk he's talking about is referring back to the Old Testament idea about how God had circumcision as a way to set apart his people, to distinguish them. And so what Paul's saying is, you have been made the people of God through Christ. We've been buried with Christ in baptism. We've been raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God's made us alive together with, with Christ. We've been forgiven all of our trespasses. He took the, he canceled the, I love this part, he canceled the record of debt. Um, 
that was held against us along with its legal demands. So like the record of everything we've ever done, I mean, very literally the record of everything you've ever done wrong and the consequences for it, he's canceled all of that and nailed it to the cross. The cross is where things go to die, right? So it's gone. And he's also disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And this is really cool because these rulers and authorities he's talking about are like the, really the spiritual powers of the world that held us captive before we were set free in Christ, right? So it's this really kind of elaborate, beautiful picture. I could keep going on and really kind of flesh it out. But that's just what he's talking I just want to remind us. That's what Paul's just talked about. And then he says this in verse 16. Therefore, having said all of that, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. If you don't know what asceticism is, because I did not, it's like severe bodily discipline. So there's like really crazy versions of this that look like self-mutilation that like some pagan cultures did and whatever else, but there's also just like this idea that like you must really discipline yourself, like a highly regimented, disciplined person, and, then, and there's benefit from that, from being that sort of self, it's like severely self-disciplined as a person. So that's what he's getting at with the idea of asceticism. Insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together, through joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If, with Christ, you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. So he's asking, why do you still live as if you were still alive in the world, submitting to regulations according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting a self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Here's what Paul is saying to the church. If Christ has done this, if you have experienced the gospel, and if you have been buried with Christ and raised to life in him, why do you live as if that's not true? Specifically, he's saying, why do you let people judge you and disqualify you, and add these other things that they say you ought to do to your faith. He says, if you've died to the elemental spirits of the world, this is the powers and authorities he referred to earlier, why do you continue to submit to these regulations? And what he's getting at is this. The Colossian church has started to take the gospel and add to it. And they've added some religious things to it, he says this in the first part. We talked about these questions of food or drink or regarding festivals or new moons or the Sabbath. They're taking religious practices and they're adding it to their faith. And they're also taking things from the culture around them that seem good and also adding that to their faith. And the problem is it's taking their focus off of Christ and putting it on these other things. It's distracting them from their faith in him starting to tempt them to put their faith in other things. And it's this really interesting thing because it's actually a very subtle thing that's happening. And a lot of times we read the Bible and we think like, oh, there's like following Jesus and then like sin, like murder and lies. We'd like the very black and white version of this. And Paul's addressing a subtle thing that's happening to this young church and encouraging them to stay away from it so that they might continue to follow Jesus well. 
The problem that the Colossian church was facing was they were beginning to believe a false teaching and adding to and convoluting the gospel. And they began to go through this kind of series of thinking. They started, to, uh, they started by beginning to believe that salvation and satisfaction was found apart from Christ alone, right? There's no other reason to, to start looking at these other things and starting to add these other things to their faith if they didn't believe that. If they believed that their satisfaction and salvation came from Christ alone, they, would, they wouldn't regard any of the other things. They wouldn't be trying to add to their faith other things that they felt might make them you know, more favorable in God's eyes or might make their walk with God better or might make their lives better. So they've started by beginning to believe that salvation and satisfaction was found apart from Christ alone. And in belief, beginning to believe that, they then began to submit to a false gospel and to another Lord other than Christ. Now, this is really interesting. Very obviously, they have a false teaching that they're dealing with. Paul doesn't exactly address a false teacher. And if you read sort of commentary on this, some people believe there were like false teachers who were like very actively in the church kind of presenting this false gospel. Um, other, other commentators say that like that's not necessarily the case. It might just kind of through osmosis and being in the culture that they're just kind of taking it on. Um, either way, um, there is a false gospel, right? Like a, it's Jesus plus something else thing that they're believing. But there's also a submission to another Lord. And it's kind of subtle in the context here. He says it specifically in verse 20 when he says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, like if you've died to this, why do you continue to submit to regulations? There's a submission. And I think a lot of times with us, we begin to think that like, oh, it's just like, it's just a teaching thing. But what Paul's really saying is he's like, he's telling them, you're, you're choosing a Lord that's not Jesus and following them. Um, whether that's explicitly a person or whether that's just kind of resubmitting to the elemental spirits of the world, the rulers, the authorities, he talks about in verse 15. There's this idea that, that they're choosing to submit to something other than Christ. And then that finally leads them to this kind of third place where, as the people of God, they're beginning to believe that they're less than who Christ says that they are in him. And you see this in verse 16 when they are letting people pass judgment on them. And you see this in verse 18 when they're letting people disqualify them. You guys kind of follow that thinking, right? I know it's a little convoluted, but that's what happens when you're dealing with something that's kind of subtle and nuanced. They're beginning to believe that salvation and sanctification, uh, satisfaction happens somewhere else. They then, in trying to search for that somewhere else, begin to submit to something else, someone else. And then in submitting to that, they're allowing these other lords, so to speak, judge them and, and disqualify them when that's obviously not what Christ does. And it results in this problem where they begin to believe what others say about them instead of what Christ says about them. And it's a problem. And if this continues in the church, this problem is going to become worse and worse, which is why Paul's addressing it. And so the question that I have for us today is, do we face this same problem? Are there false teachings? Do we look for other things, right? And I think a lot of times, and I know I did this when I was prepping this, I was like, okay, yes, my mind went straight to things like, um, something like the prosperity gospel, right? Where that we believe that if we 
do for God or give to God that God's going to bless us materially in this world, right? Or I went to things like, in my brain, like, you know, like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness or like this like version of something that looks sort of like Christianity, but also it's just not. But what I began to realize as I was working through that is like, I kept thinking like about other people. Like, do they have this problem? And really, we need to ask the question for ourselves, like, do we, like, do we have this problem? And so most people do a three-point sermon. Mine is three questions for us to ask ourselves and think through, right? So the first question I want us to ask ourselves is, are we tempted to believe that salvation and sanctification are found apart from Christ alone? That's the first question. Do you believe that something other than Jesus makes you right with God? Do you believe that something other than Jesus will satisfy you? I asked myself this question, and I was thinking through, okay, well, what does this potentially look like? For me, and I'll answer for me, um, yes, there is a temptation to believe this. Specifically, for me, it looks a lot like legalism. Um, We live in Northern Ireland. We talk about clean living, and that, like, I remember having a conversation with with a student once about being, they said they were a Christian. I was like, oh, great, what does that mean for you? They're like, oh, it means I don't drink or smoke. And I was like, cool, but like, what else? And they're like, that's it. I'm like, that's what it means to be a Christian. And they're like, yes. I'm like, I feel like you're missing something. Like, it's a little bit more than that, right? We laugh, but we do that. Like, we, we, take, we take faith in Jesus, and we're like, oh, it just means doing these things and not doing these things, and that's it. I grew up, the church I grew up in, was a lot of this. Like a lot of what I remember from Sunday mornings wasn't like Jesus loves you and there's grace for every shortcoming you have. And a lot of like, if you want to be a Christian, it means doing this and not doing this. It means voting this way and not voting this way. It was a lot of behavioral stuff. Um, I carry that with me today, right? The problem with legalism is that it causes us to put our faith in ourselves and not in Jesus. And what it results in is an obedience that's not out of love for Christ. It's an obedience out of self-righteousness. And it's a really, really rough place to live. Because you're constantly judging other people. You're constantly measuring yourself against other people. You're constantly aware of the fact that you aren't perfect. But you're constantly putting your faith in the good things that you do as if it'll make you good enough. That's not the gospel. So for me, that's the salvation bit. The satisfaction bit, I think, is everywhere. Um, this I feel a little more confident talking about, like all of us in the room, and really probably our culture on the whole, right? Because in satisfaction, like I don't know how many times a day I think, well, if I only had blank, then things would be better, or if only this was different, then things would be better. But what those questions get at and what those thoughts get at is that I believe that something about what I have and possess, or my circumstance, if only that changes, then satisfaction, then I'll be satisfied. And we know, I mean, I don't know how much life you've lived. I've only lived 35 years, but in my experience, that's just not true. Even when I get the thing, there's this something else that I want. I wonder how many times we've asked questions like, if we just had this salary, then all the stress I'm dealing with and all these things that are going on, all these problems I'm having would go away. 
then I'd be happy. If I could just get to a size 34 waist, then I'd be happy. Or whatever, women's sizes are like smaller numbers, right? Whatever, whatever that is, whatever size you have in your target, whatever number that you want to see when you step on a scale, and like that's when you're going to be happy, right? Or if I could just drive this car, or if I just lived in this house, or if we had four bedrooms instead of three, or if the third bedroom wasn't a box room anymore, but maybe something like, you know, a little bigger. Um, maybe if we just lived closer to family. Maybe if we lived further away from family, right, then life's, right? There's always something about our circumstances or what we have that we feel like is going to make it matter. And what that shows us is that we don't really believe that Jesus can satisfy. Paul addresses this actually in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verses 6 through 9, he says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain. You can be godly and not content. A lot of us live our lives pretty much every day that way. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Paul is highlighting how discontentment is a temptation and a snare. It leads us to search for satisfaction in something other than Christ. Okay? So, I'll remind us of the question one more time. Are we tempted to believe that our salvation and our satisfaction are found apart from Christ alone? Second question to ask ourselves. Do we submit to a false gospel and another Lord other than Christ? Now, I think a lot of us might be tempted to be like, mm, maybe, probably not, probably because we don't want to admit that. I know I don't or didn't. Um, in a long time, I thought about it in terms of false teaching. Like, do I believe what's true? Yes, I believe Christ is the only way to salvation. I believe, you know, like what the Bible says. Um, I try to say, I try to like judge things by that, by the Bible. Um, but what I began to realize is if I judge, if I, if I kind of am assessing this question of whether or not I believe a false gospel, um, I, I'm, I'm the person that's the discerner. Like, right, it's up to me. It's up to my wisdom to judge what's right and true or not. And we see obvious versions of this sometimes about like false gospels, false teachers. Like we see people who like are actually like not teaching the truth about Christ and watching people follow them and can pretty clearly see like the folly in that, for lack of a better word. But the difference um, is, is, like I said, this is a subtle thing. And I think we actually live in a world that's becoming less and less subtle about the fact that they want to be, that like these voices or these people want to be the Lord of our lives, right? Um, I think, like I said, thinking about the teaching bit of it is difficult because I'm the one assessing whether or not it's true or not. I think if you think about it in terms of like, the, like who's the Lord, like who's the voice, who am, I, who am I listening to, not what are they saying, it gets easier because Jesus needs to be the Lord of our life and no one else gets to be that. 
Like that's what, like that's what being a Christian is. It's saying like, I'm forsaking all these other things and I'm following you and you alone. And you and you alone are the Lord and Savior of my life, right? And I think this idea, just to kind of camp out on it real quick, of Lord is difficult for us because we live in the democratic West, right? We don't like understand or accept or have like a point of reference for the idea that there's someone who gets to tell me what is and isn't what I ought to be doing or what I ought not to be doing, who even gets to tell me who I am and who I am not. But that's what a Lord is, right? And so I know I just talked about legalism and this is gonna kind of like feel like that a little bit, but I want you to hear me what I say. Like we choose our Lords and we can tend to think that like making Jesus Lord of my life is me submitting to like an authority that I don't have any freedom over. And if I live over here, I've got freedom. And that's not the case. We're just choosing other people to listen to and obey. And I can give you an example of this, okay? Like I said, the world's beginning a little less uh, subtle about this. Like, we call social media influencers influencers for a reason. Because you are literally choosing who you will listen to, who gets to speak into your life. You're not choosing a teaching, you're choosing a Lord. Right? And so for us to ask this, ourselves this question, we need to think about who am I letting like, be the Lord of my life? Who am I listening to? Who am I letting be the one to shape my thinking? Who am I obeying? Because we're all obeying somebody. Okay? Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Or is it social media influencers? Is it particular like worldviews, politicians, politics? Is it um, family? Is it friends? Is it what you're, what you're reading? Is it what you're watching on TV? Is it the podcasts you're listening to? Is it your pastor? Which made me think about like, Ugh, that could be weird, right? But it's true. Like, I'm not Jesus. Andrew's not Jesus. We do what we can to faithfully say like, this is what Jesus says. But like, but Jesus is the Lord. And if ever we err from what Jesus is saying, he did not listen to us anymore. Who's the Lord of your life? And are we, I mean, we love this idea. Like, are we the Lord of our life? Do I get to say, like, am I really worried about my truth, and what I believe to be true or what I want to be true? Or, or is Jesus the Lord, right? Who we listen to matters. And who we listen to determines whether or not we believe a true gospel or a false gospel. Christ must be the Lord. He must always win. When it becomes between what I want and what Christ wants, Christ must win. When it comes between what I think or what Christ thinks, Christ must win. When it comes between what the world says and what Jesus says, Jesus must win. Or he's not the Lord. It's really that simple. Jesus, in I think it's John, asks a very simple question. Why do you call me Lord? He's talking to like a crowd of people. Why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you to do? And like, I just, I, I love and hate the simplicity of that because it really is that simple. It's like, you're, you call me something that you don't like. It, the, it's, not it's not what's happening here. Third question for us. Do we believe that we are less than who Christ says that we are? I was tempted to actually start with this question and work my way backwards. 
Because if we start with this question and answer yes, that I don't believe that I am who Christ says I am, or that I believe that I'm less than who Christ says I am, it means that the other questions are true. It means that we have lords in our lives that tell us that we're less than, that pass judgment on us, that try to disqualify us or make us feel like we don't belong to Christ or that we still fall short or that, Jesus, that God's not happy with us for whatever reason. <clears throat> I think we see this, I see this in my own life, particularly um, in, in, the rea- in like just my thinking. Um, that oftentimes I'll just be having a great day and all of a sudden like, The devil will like remind me of something I did earlier that week, the way I treated the kids, something I said to my wife Lauren, or something, and it just it all comes crashing down. I feel the accusation, take it on, I believe it's true about me, and I'm just like crushed. Right? Um, or I'm wrestling, you know, or I'll we'll be wrestling with like circumstances in life. Um, it's been a hard week, it's a month where we're tied on money, or whatever's going on. And the thought goes into my head like, you know, if God really loved you, then this probably wouldn't be happening. Right? It, I, I experienced this one in particular, this accusation, this believing that I'm less than or believing that God doesn't care about me or something in my, in my, in my thoughts a lot. I think most of us do. I think the reason for this is because we have a very real enemy, the devil, um, who wants us, who wants to pass judgment on us, who wants to disqualify us. Paul talks about them here. The rulers, the authorities, in verse 15, the elemental spirits of the world, verse 20, these voices that aren't from Christ telling us that we are less than and trying to judge us and disqualify us. Satan, the word itself, the name of the devil that we call him Satan, is Hebrew for accuser, like the one who accuses. Like That's what he does. And that's how we experience it. And so we hear these accusations and then believe we, we are letting someone pass judgment on us, letting someone disqualify us. We see, I, I think we see this three ways. Um, we see this in the recalling of past sins. We see this in the highlighting of our weaknesses and shortcomings. And we see this in, in how Satan likes to create doubt through lies. If God really loved you, if God really cared about you, then blank wouldn't be happening or you would have blank, right? I think, guys, the reality is we face the same problem the Colossian church did. We are tempted to believe that we can find satisfaction and salvation outside of Jesus Christ alone. I believe that we can submit to false gospels and other lords other than Christ, and I believe that we believe that we're less than who Christ says that we are. And like our good friend Mark Watson, take something very simple, the gospel, and we complicate it because these desires and these misguided thinkings and us accepting other teachings and really other lords in our life causes us to miss it. So, I've taken a long time talking about the problem. What does Paul say about it? What does God say about it? How do we deal with this? I love what Paul does here because he helps the Colossian church and corrects their thinking by refocusing their attention on the truth, Jesus Christ and the gospel. 
I'm going to reread it here a little bit. Look at what he says in th- uh, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadows of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He's talking about the problem and what they're doing, and then says, these things actually don't matter because the, the actual thing is Christ. The substance is, is found in Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, being puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, right? So that's what you do. That's what this person is doing. That's what the teachers are doing. That's what the false teaching is saying to do. But what it does is it causes us to not hold fast to the head, again, Christ, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Takes their attention again and says, you're doing this, but it's causing you to not focus on Jesus who nourishes, who knits together, who grows with the growth that is from God. Right? And then in chapter 3, which I haven't read yet, verses 1 through 4, he says this. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. <clears throat> he concludes this thinking by saying, if you have been raised with Christ, and quick note, in verse 20, he says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, right? he's like, if you've died to these things, why do you keep doing them? If you've been raised with Christ, do this. See how he does that there? Okay, he's like literally taking them back through the gospel that he just went through, which we looked at last week. Like, if all this is true, then why do you keep doing this? And why aren't you doing this? And the this he tells us to do is to seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Seek Jesus. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Right? Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. It's funny because when Paul keeps talking about all these things that they're doing, he keeps highlighting the fact that uh, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that perish as they are used. Questions of food or drink or regards to festivals, new moons, or the Sabbath, these are shadows of things to come. Right? He's talking about like the things you're doing are you're dealing with temporal things that pass away. Like set your minds on the eternal. Set your minds on Christ. He's highlighting the fact that, and this, you see this in their thinking, right? They're, they, because they believe that, the, that sat, satisfaction and salvation are found somewhere else, their, their minds aren't set on Christ anymore. They're being set on other things. They're looking somewhere else for something else. He's like, don't do that. Set it, set it, fix it on Christ. Verse 3, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul's saying, let's not complicate the beautiful simplicity of the gospel. Jesus Christ is your salvation. Jesus Christ is your satisfaction. Jesus Christ is your Lord. And what Jesus says about you is what's true. We don't need to seek for salvation or satisfaction somewhere else. We found in Jesus. It is found in Jesus. 
We don't need to submit to other lords because we have in Christ the most benevolent, steadfast love, faithful Lord we could have in Jesus, who loves us so much that he died for us. No other Lord has died for you. No other person you would want to listen to or who says something that might seem good, that has the appearance of wisdom, they didn't die for you. Christ did. That's why we follow him. We can submit to him because he is a loving and faithful Lord who loves us so much that he died for us. And we can believe that we are who Christ says we are in him. In verse 3, he says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul highlights the fact that we have a security in our salvation that is unshakable. He then talks about what this looks like in the future in verse 4 when he says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, when Christ comes again, you also will appear with him in glory. Like, we're so bound, like our... Our eternal destiny is so much bound in Christ that God sees, us, sees Christ when he sees us, and it's so much so that when Christ comes back glorified, we will be glorified with him. The, the confidence Paul talks about here is reassuring, especially for people who are clearly looking for something else and uncertain. We can live differently as believers because we can seek things that are above and set our minds on them. We can seek Christ and set our mind on him. We can rest in the security of our salvation in Christ. <clears throat> Knowing that our life is hidden with Christ and God, we can believe that what Jesus says about us is true. I actually want to, I kind of want to like wrap our sermon up by looking at just some passages about what the Bible says about who we are in Christ. I feel like that's just like, a good thing to do, to remember. It feels like a good way to set our minds on things that are above and, 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 to, and to fix it there. But look at what the Bible says about us. In Romans 8, 1 through 2, it says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We were just talking about people passing judgment on us and disqualifying us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. Romans 8, 35, 37 to 39 says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulations, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, uh, God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 1 Peter 2, 9-10. But you, we, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Colossians 1, 12 through 14, we looked at this a few weeks ago. The Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. God has qualified us. Our false lords try to disqualify us. God has qualified us in Christ. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him beforehand that we should walk in them. The word workmanship there in the Greek is poema, which is where we get poem, which I really love. I say that every time I look at this verse because it reminds me that it's like, it's not just like something God made, but like, have you ever, if you've ever written a poem, you know that it takes a lot of work, even though it seems like not a lot of words, but it's like a lot of, it, primarily a lot of thoughtfulness goes into making a poem. You have to think about it and really put in there what you're doing. And that kind of care and thought is what Christ, or God has put into us. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. John 10.27-29, My sheep, this is Jesus talking to us, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Guys, what Christ says about us is true. Please, please, please don't let anyone pass judgment on you or disqualify you. Don't listen to the enemy when he tells you that you are less than, not worthy of the love of God. Set your minds on things above. Seek the things that are above. Fix your eyes on Jesus and believe in him. Um, I'm going to pray for us real quick, and then we're going to do um, communion. Every week we close with communion, which is a meal that we share together. This meal reminds us of the gospel, as we've been talking about this morning, specifically of the saving work of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. We talked about how we died to elemental spirits of the world, and we were raised with Christ. And we live totally differently now because of that. This meal reminds us of that transformative thing that's happened in our lives because of Jesus. Everything that we have read about this morning and learned has significance because of this and what this represents. Not because of this, but because of what this represents. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And we want to proclaim Jesus' death every week, remembering that it is central to our life of faith. Absolutely essential. The only thing. In Christ, God has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into his kingdom. If you're a believer, this meal is for you by way to take and remember and proclaim Christ's death that we have died and been raised in him. If you are not a believer yet, I'd ask you not not to partake in this meal and instead receive Christ. Consider Christ. Put your faith in Jesus. That's what this represents. I'm going to pray for us real quick, and then we're going to share this meal together. Father God, thank you for your word.
Thank you for this meal that reminds us of the work you've done on the cross. Thank you, God, that we don't have to listen to other lords, that we don't have to seek for salvation and satisfaction anywhere else other than you. Thank you that what you say about us is true. Are we, I mean, we aren't worthy to be part of your family, to be part of your kingdom. We aren't worthy to be forgiven. You haven't done more good than bad. We haven't done enough to make you love us. Um, you love us only because, only because of Christ. And you've shown your love for us in him. God, as we eat the bread, drink the wine, help us to remember everything that you say about us and your word is true. God, help us to loving, like, willingly, lovingly, graciously once again remember that you are the Lord of our life and also our Savior. We pray.